Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. For an estimated 1.4 million young people between the ages of 8 and 18, being in school again after a summer off comes with more stress than you can fit into an extra-large backpack. That's because, in addition to keeping up with their schoolwork, these youngsters are also scrambling to keep up with the needs of an ill, disabled, or elderly adult in their lives. How do they do it? And when a young person is the primary caregiver for an adult, how does it affect the youngster's life? We're going to talk about that with today's guest. Dr. Connie Siskowski is the founder and president of the American Association of Caregiving Youth, a Florida-based nonprofit and the only organization of its kind in the United States solely dedicated to addressing the needs of this hidden population. Among her many awards, in 2009, Connie was one of 10 winners of the Purpose Prize, given to people over age 60 who have initiated an innovative solution for social change. Connie was also a 2012 CNN Top 10 Hero. I am so honored to have her on our program. Connie Siskowski, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I read that as a child you took care of your grandfather and he died when you were just 13 years old. Uh, could you talk about that experience and how it affected your youth? Sure. So I wouldn't say that it affected me so much at the time because I had no realization. Mm-hmm. And it was at a time, you know, years and years and years ago when people didn't realize the trauma on children. So for me, other people in my family were missing a caregiving gene, I would say. My brother was totally, you know, disinterested. My mom worked a lot, and my grandmother just didn't have, I guess, the compassion that is needed. And so because my grandfather and I were close, it was just a natural thing for me to want to uh, take care of him. But I wasn't prepared to deal with some of the gender issues um, in providing personal care. Mm -hmm. And I slept in the living room, which was closer to their bedroom, Mm -hmm. and was getting up in the middle of the night to give him his medication. Mm -hmm. And so it was in March of 1960 when at 2 o'clock in the morning I went to give him his pill, and he was no longer breathing. So... You know, looking back as an adult, it really affected my life personally, but that was, you know, not recognized uh, by anyone, and and so it's really no one's fault. It was just ignorance of what was going on at the time. Uh So it wasn't until I was much older, and I was in counseling, that it was pointed out to me that, (laughs) you know, this might not have been the best thing for a child my age to do. And what I've really learned from that is the importance of 
supporting the relationship, but also helping to deal with some of the traumas because that's not going to go away and the health conditions are not going to go away. And in fact, if anything, care at home is more complex than it ever was before and the duration of caregiving is extended. Mm -hmm. So that for me, it was a couple of years at most because my grandfather was on kind of a steady decline. Mm -hmm. But for many of our kids that we work with, it goes on for years. And for them, the average time of caregiving, depending on the situation, of course, is probably longer than the average time for an adult family caregiver, which is about four and a half years. Hmm, That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought about that at all. So your grandparents were living in the same house as your parents growing up. You were yeah, well, my parents, my parents were divorced when I was probably before I was born. I don't know. They were separated. Okay. I, I have no recollection of living with my father. Okay. And so did anyone help you in your caregiving? No. You're... You know, there wasn't a time when there were home health care companies. You know, right. in our town, there yeah. may have been visiting nurses, right. but that right. was much even right. later. What a change. Wow. Yeah. And you're a registered nurse who pursued a PhD later in life, which is so inspiring. Tell us about why you pursued that degree and the focus of your PhD research project. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because I went on to specialize in cardiac nursing. Mm -hmm. My grandfather died of congestive heart failure and and heart-related complications. So it's kind of like the pieces of the puzzle kind of come full circle. Mm -hmm. So I was remarried Mm -hmm. for the fourth time, and I was traveling a lot. And so I was doing consulting work, mm-hmm. and it's kind of comical in a, in a sense because my husband in his industry, you know, if you had a PhD, you would make more money. And so he thought it would be a great idea for me to go back to school to get my PhD, <laughs> um, <laughs> never really expecting that the rest of our years would be dedicated to this. Mm-hmm. But I, I had the opportunity to go to the first international conference on family caregiving in London in 1998. And it was through that experience that I learned about what they call young carers there mm-hmm. and the support that had been given to them since the early 1990s mm-hmm. and the impact that it had on them personally as well as their education. And that summer I went on a mission trip with kids from my church and one of the boys' dad had just died and another girl's dad had pancreatic cancer. And so it's like seeds were planted along the way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I had already started a nonprofit to provide volunteer support services to people who were homebound and caregiving families. So we always serve people of all ages. But the caregiving families and and the program was more local. So when I went back to school, and I did so to have a bigger voice for all family caregivers, Mm -hmm. but then learned of this survey that was being conducted in Palm Beach County, Florida, among middle and high school students. And I was able to attach to that survey that went to more than 12,600 middle and high school students, a section on family health, Mm -hmm. and 
how many children were participating in any kind of special care needed for family members Mm -hmm. and how it was impacting them academically. So more than 4,000 of that whole group said that they were either missing school, not completing homework, or having trouble focusing. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, or some combination. But it was at a time when schools were starting to get more concerned about dropout. Uh But they were looking at what's wrong with the schools, what's wrong with the teachers. They Uh weren't really looking at what are the external barriers for children to learn and what are the other influences that are creating situations for them to drop out of school. Wow. So up to that point, it had not really occurred to folks to investigate family caregiving as a factor, it sounds like. Correct. Correct, because, I mean, the attention to family caregiving in our country really didn't happen until, like, the Uh mid-1990s. So it was still young, and because of the extent of adult family caregivers needing support, you know, it's kind of like the tsunami of adult family caregivers versus a wave of children. Right. The primary domains that are involved are healthcare, education, and the community. And it's because of gaps in each of those systems that the children need to look for support. In healthcare, I'm a nurse, right? I never learned about caregiving as a nurse, and it's still not taught really well. It's not on the radar screen of physicians. But we are uh, working on a special project. There's a resolution with the American Academy of Pediatrics that would encourage more research as well as to ask pediatricians about the health of other family members when they do exams. And in education, what goes on from a family health perspective is really beyond the purview of the school, and yet it impacts the school. Mm-hmm. And many of our community leaders are not healthcare based. So, unless they have had a personal experience, they don't really have an understanding of the impact of health on the whole family. Mm-hmm. So, you're saying that these are like three different dots that need to be connected health, education, yeah. and community. Mm-hmm. Right. So, how do you define caregiving youth for our listeners? We really define it as a child who is sacrificing their education, their health, their well-being, and their childhood to provide care for a family member who's ill or injured or elderly or disabled. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to clarify, too, that not all of the children that we work with are primary caregivers. Some of them are if they live in a home where there's a single parent and the single parent becomes ill or the same with we have today more grandparents raising grandchildren and then the grandparent becomes ill and so in those situations the child is the primary caregiver but often you know grandparent may move in with an intact family or there may be a sibling who is disabled and maybe both parents work so the child has responsibility for the disabled sibling after school, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps some on weekends. Today, more and more people who are in quote-unquote normal families, both parents have to work. Right. And so care that's needed pushes down to the children. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit bit more about your organization's history and its sort of evolution over the years. 
Yeah, so we started as uh, Boca Raton Interfaith in Action, a faith in action program Mm -hmm. of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation with just $25,000 in seed money. And we continued and we struggled and in reaching out to corporations to uh, support their employed family caregivers. We were told that the word interfaith got in the way. And so we renamed our organization to Volunteers for the Homebound and Family Caregivers. And that happened in 2005. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I had finished my PhD in 2004 and had started meeting with people in the community because I had also shared the results of my research with people that I had come to know nationally. Mm-hmm. And they then convened a meeting in New York, bringing over some of the experts from the UK. And that was the genesis of the funding to do the first national survey that showed that there were at least 1.3 to 1.4 million children ages 8 to 18 in this role mm-hmm. in our country. And so after the national report came out, there was some media attention, mm-hmm. particularly from ABC. Mm-hmm. And that gave people a visual yeah. to see what kids were actually doing. And so that plus the data plus the silent epidemic report showing that 22% of young adults who had dropped out of school said it was to care for a family member allowed us to present this information and develop a plan and receive funding from the Schmidt Family Foundation, a a local funder. And so that kind of kicked off the Caregiving Youth Project. And once we started working with the children, it was very difficult to adequately provide the quality we needed in developing a new program. So we transitioned our adult volunteer services to a non-hospice program of Hospice by the Sea so that they could continue being served Mm -hmm. and so we could focus solely on caregiving youth and so our organization adopted the name and corporately changed the name to the American Association of Caregiving Youth in Mm -hmm. 2010. Mm -hmm. You referred earlier to the silent epidemic. That was a 2006 Gates Foundation uh, report, as I understand it. Correct. That showed 22% of high school dropouts leave school to care for family members, which is well, astonishing. It was, it was, yeah, it was of young adults who had dropped out of school. So okay. it was a retrospective study. And what we really find is that, you know, when kids drop out of school, they don't go through like an exit interview typically. Right. So there's not good data on high school dropouts per se. Mm-hmm. Without in- using anyone's name, can you give us an example of a young person that the association has helped and what his or her situation was? Sure. Let's see. <laughs> there's so many stories. Yeah, I'm sure. But, you know, and a few always stick out in yeah. your mind. So one of the activities that we provide is an overnight camp. Mm-hmm. And... We take away the cell phones of (laughs) kids Mm -hmm. um, for the camp experience so that they can, you know, fully focus on themselves and really be taken care of instead of worrying about taking care of others. Mm -hmm. So it turned out that there was a girl at camp. She got so involved in her cabin time and, and with the other kids that she forgot to call home and let her dad know that everything was okay. And, of course, her cell phone was turned off, so her dad couldn't reach her. 
And the next morning he came and he was very concerned about, you know, what was happening with his daughter. And he had misplaced the paperwork that had the name and numbers of our camp director. So he showed up and he was just really distraught. And he shared with me how when his daughter was in third grade, his wife had had a stroke and how by the time she was in fifth grade, his daughter was suicidal. And in sixth grade, she attended a school where we have our caregiving youth project, and she joined it. And he said that her life has just turned around. She knows she's not alone. Now she's an honor roll student. Wow. And by the time camp ended, we do a little closing ceremony, if you will. And she said this is the most fun that she's had. That's wonderful. So she came to the camp before... Well, she had she joined our Caregiving Youth Project uh-huh. at the school, at the middle school that she attended. So part of uh, the services that we offer in school is a skills building group. Mm-hmm. And it's there that the kids learn that they're not alone. It's a six-week class mm-hmm. once a week mm-hmm. and it provides some foundation courses such as communication and self-care and managing stress and the kids share their stories with each other because we ask them to keep it confidential what's expressed in the group stays in the group mm-hmm. and then when she came to camp she learned that she was not alone because she met kids from other schools so her caregiving world increased mm-hmm. How many schools are you working with now? Uh, right now, uh, with 22 wow. um, middle and high schools. That's just the Caregiving Youth Project in Palm Beach County. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so we have also launched a Caregiving Youth Institute, mm-hmm. where we had our first conference in 2015. Mm-hmm. And on April 27th of 2017, we will be having our second conference. Oh, that's great. And out of the conference evolved a group called the Caregiving Youth Research Collaborative. So we're working with researchers from about eight universities to come together because the research in our country is still very scant. So we're trying to promote that. And then we also had people reaching into us to form an affiliate network. Mm-hmm. So that's in various stages in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. That's really great. So what's your ultimate goal with the Association of Caregiving Youth? The ultimate goal is that no caregiving youth in our country should have to drop out of school because of caregiving responsibilities. Mm. So we're working to form partnerships with national organizations to raise awareness. So we're thankful for programs such as yours that can help with that and to also have these children recognized and supported. So we have collaborated on a book called uh, I'm a Teen Caregiver, Now What? (laughs) Great title. That will come out, yeah, (laughs) so that'll come out in November. Uh And we also have copyrighted our materials that we've developed so that they can be purchased Uh and used by various people. Mm -hmm. It's still a relatively new topic, isn't it? Oh, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um. And it has no legislative teeth yet. Actually, it's a form of reverse age discrimination because a child can do the exact same thing as an adult, Mm -hmm. but have no recognition, no benefits. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not, and there's more caregiving youth than there are kids in foster care or who are homeless. That's quite a statistic. 
Of course, children can do things that adults can do. We only need to go back 70 years to see how children were being exploited in the labor market before we put them in schools. So I know that it's a relatively new topic. What about the vast number of aging services organizations? Do they <clears throat> recognize the burden that these youth are under? Are you getting support from the broader community? We're working on it. But uh, again, because there's so many more adult family caregivers and there's been so much more research done about the impact on adult family caregivers mm-hmm. versus the kids, mm-hmm. that that's really kind of taking the groundswell of support. Plus, we're supposed to be taking care of kids as adults. They're not supposed to be taking care of us. So even one of our elected officials said to me, well, Connie, you know, maybe people don't want to know. And, you know, that may be true, but that's too what? bad. You know, it's, right. it's the reality it right. exists. And the economy has impacted these kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, families have moved together. You know, even the changing structure of the family, where more people have co-residents, mm-hmm. we have more blended families. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah. know, in addition to the, the home care technology advances that allow for people to be cared for at home in ways that, you know, used to be done in the hospital or nursing home. Right. I, I was thinking as well, when you were talking about that, about the sort of growing trend of aging in place and how mm-hmm. that's affecting these kids. What are some of the consequences of elders staying in their homes instead of, for instance, going to a nursing home or other facility? Is technology making their caregiving any easier? I would say I would say yes and no. You know, one thing is that if people who become aggressive or unstable who are being cared for at home, it really promotes isolation. So for the kids, you know, you don't have friends over, you don't have that capability. And we've seen instances where, say, there's a person who's wheelchair-bound who is discharged from the hospital, and they live in a mobile home. Well, a mobile home, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't just roll into it. So that also forces isolation and sometimes even a lack of medical care because Mm -hmm. you can't get out. And so there's a whole host of things that just aren't taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. And then you have people who are undocumented, who live in fear of having anybody from the outside come in and people without insurance or even those with insurance that have managed care, the home care services are often very, very limited. Mm -hmm. And as you were speaking, I thought about children in ethnic minority families. They're maybe the only English-speaking family member, and so I should imagine that requires them to be translators. Um, And miss school to translate and then not always have the mental or emotional capacity to relate to their family member in their own language what Mm -hmm. is going on. Mm -hmm. And so actually one of our board members commented the other day that she had an instance where it was a Spanish-speaking family, and on the medication bottle, the medicine was supposed to be given once a day, but once is like once or Mm -hmm. 11. Mm -hmm. And so Uh there was an overdose. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, things like that, people don't always think about. Right. Very real consequences. Yeah. How many kids are you working with? 
We have served more than 1,100 students and their families wow. since we began. Wow. Uh, last year, we had 559, uh-huh. um, and there's you know many more schools, even in Palm Beach County, and kids that we haven't reached yet. So, what is what sort of feedback are you getting from some of the family members? Many are grateful, especially families that will allow us to do a home visit where we can link them up to existing resources. Mm-hmm. They then, too, feel cared about. Actually, we are in the midst of launching a new program, a partnership between ADT and State Farm, and they're providing us with 100 medical alarm systems and monitoring for a year. And we're trying to show that by having this, it reduces the stress on the child so that they can stay more focused in school as well as have some opportunity to participate in other activities without the worry of what am I going to find when I get home. Right. And just the other day, one of the moms that we called, she's a mom with MS. She just started crying Mm -hmm. and said that she had fallen in her closet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was there for her son to find when he got home from school. And, you know, that's something that stays with a kid. And what's so wonderful about the new systems is that they operate off of um, a cell tower, and some of them even have like a trigger. Say it's you wear it around your neck, and if there's a sudden change in, in the altitude, if you will, it triggers the call center, and so then they'll check on the person. Wow. So if they fall... Yeah, that they can be proactive. That's really so. great. And how many people are you um, on your staff? I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot of work with very little. Do you have a lot of volunteers? or We uh, do have uh, volunteers, and mm-hmm. we have about nine people on staff, mm-hmm. and some are part-time, mm-hmm. but we also have a couple people who are independent contractors. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we are really resource-limited mm-hmm. um, in terms of being able to reach more kids. Mm-hmm. You know, we have schools that would welcome us, but without the resources, we can't get to them. Right. You mentioned earlier about the legislator who said nobody wants to hear about this. Mm-hmm. Can you recall any other conversations you've had with public officials about this and their responses? Well, some have been very supportive. For instance, the mayor of our city just issued a proclamation on behalf of our kids and our work, mm-hmm. and the county will be doing the same thing. But our general experience has been that people seem to understand right away, and they're going to do this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. And then even when you contact them to follow up, there's no ongoing strength. No, yeah, no follow-through. Yeah, um, and so that's kind of frustrating. Even we had um, a congressman was going to come to our camp and never showed up. So, well, you know, it's, that's a little disheartening, but yeah. we know we just have to keep persevering until the right person becomes the champion that we need. Right. So in Palm Beach County, how many are we talking about? That number, 1.4 million that I referred to, it's that's national. nationwide. So Yeah. We, yeah. Well, we know that there's more than 10,000. Mm-hmm. And all of the children who are caregiving youth may not be eligible to come into our program mm-hmm. because we do an eligibility process. And mm-hmm. so we look at um, the types of tasks that they're doing. 
and we use a weighted index that uh-huh. we've worked on uh-huh. so that if you're bathing someone or feeding them, that has a higher weight than if you're doing grocery shopping. And so it looks at the tasks and it looks at the time that they spend. So we have five levels of responsibility and we just enroll kids in the top three levels. Oh, wow. Now, yeah, if they're having emotional issues because... We really don't have yet a measure of, you know, how do you quantitate the emotional energy or worry that you spend. You can't, so, right. Yeah, we don't have a mechanism for that, but we will enroll a child who may be experiencing some of that. Yeah. Well, where can folks go to learn more about your organization? The best place is our website, which is aacy.org. And what do you want people to know about caregiving youth? For young people and older adults, what do you want people to know about caregiving youth? I would like them to know that they're a wonderful investment because they're not only helping their family, they're helping society. And the more that we can support them and help them to graduate from high school, the better off our society will be for educated, healthy, productive adults who can contribute to our tax dollars rather than be dependent on the system and that they're just really a precious population who are worthy and who deserve recognition and support. Connie Siskowski, she's the founder and president of the American Association of Caregiving Youth, the only organization in the United States dedicated to addressing the needs of young people who sacrifice their education, health, well-being, and childhood to provide care to an ill-injured, elderly, or disabled family member. Connie, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real privilege to talk with you and to know about your work. Take it easy. You're Thanks welcome. again. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. In the meantime, if you don't want to miss any episodes, head on over to agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and subscribe to the podcast. And hey, while you're there, use our search feature to find and have a listen to episodes where guests talk about issues of specific interest to you. Chances are, whatever caregiving challenge you're facing, we've interviewed someone who's gone through a very similar situation. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, laugh, cry, and best of all, you'll feel less alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, Jana Panaritas, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. If you'd like to be on the show or just tell us what you think about it, send an email to Jana at agewise.com. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.